Hello and welcome back to Learn It From a Layman. I am Carl Christensen, joined tonight today by Matt and Tim the Bad Habit Cox. Um, Tim doesn't have a chance to respond because right now he's taking care of his children and will be in and out of the podcast, but he did hear it, which is the important thing. Um, today we're going to be talking about some interesting facts and specifically ones related to, uh, well, the ones I, some of the ones I'm sharing are specifically related to the fact that this is a new year. So we've got new year facts kind of, um, but, uh, we have been off a couple weeks, so we're just jumping right back into, uh, our, uh, our fact-based podcast. Um, all right, I'm going to go ahead and start with uh, the fact that this, once again, is today is the 6th of January, 2024. So you're six days into your New Year's resolutions. And uh, some of you, I'm sure, are finding that these things are challenging. Uh, I was doing research into habits and what makes and breaks a habit. And uh, I think most of us have heard a certain number of days it takes for habit forming. Um, but I did the research and to find out what uh, what amount of time is necessary to break or make a new habit. And there's a range, as there is in all of these things. But the, it appears to be somewhere between a month to t just over two months in order to either break a bad habit or make a good habit, which in some ways are the same thing. Um, so if you are a week in and you're struggling, just know that you're going to continue struggling for another at least three, probably seven weeks, and that you should continue as long as you've made good goals to stick with it until you've created a habit that will aid you in your development going forward. So. Um, this fact is 30 to 66 days to make or break a new habit and uh, continue with your uh, with your goals. Um, I've got another follow-up on that, Tim, before I, I let you sneak in, or Matt, if you've got one. But um, a lot of people around the New Year's make habits, <clears throat> sorry, make goals, New Year's resolutions to become fit or some eat better, something along those lines. I know one that had been <clears throat> something I've been considering for a long time. And for those of you out there that are involved in sporting in, in any fashion <clears throat> or just general physical activity, you may have wondered um, if you do cardio or if you lift weights or if you want to do both, which one should you do first if you're doing them at the same time? Let's say you go to the gym or um, if you got a, or a, a workout facility, something at home, should you lift weights first or do cardio first? And you'll find a lot of different information out there. But the most recent information that I was able to find said that lifting weights first is better for peak physical performance. Um, for those of you for whom peak physical performance isn't exactly what you're going for, I would ask, why not? Because, I mean, if you're going to work on it, might as well do do the most you can. So um, as much as it probably doesn't matter, except in the margins, if you're an Olympic athlete, for example, um, the reality is that uh, I'm going to read the, the quotation here from a, a scientist. Um, it says research research suggests that 
uh, for these high-end exercisers, concurrent training, that means weight training and cardio training, may slightly inhibit improvement in aerobic capacity. More likely, it can hinder gains in muscular strength and power development and, to a lesser degree, muscle growth. This phenomenon is called the interference effect. It shows that most and well-trained athletes are taking high volumes okay. of both aerobic and resistance exercise. So the short of that is if you're doing both, sometimes they can interfere. And uh, along those lines, that's why the research suggests that uh, if you're going to do both at the same time, uh, you should start with um, your resistance training first. This is given research findings about concurrent training. It makes sense to do resistance exercise first or to train first in the type of exercise that is most important to your performance goals. Additionally, if possible, elite athletes should give their bodies a break of at least three hours in between resistance and aerobic. Though, for the layman out there, among which I am, I do not have two training sessions a day, though. So uh, I do them back to back, which is why I've always been wonder wondered what uh, what's best. So apparently, lift weights and then run is slightly better depending on what your workout goals are, but the most recent re research suggests that you're just going to benefit from better overall performance if you do resistance training first. Any insights into that, Matt or Tim? Uh, no, it sounds like a fascinating fact. <laughs> and oh, I'm coming off of mute to say, I'll just kind of add something that um, the uh, you talked about forming habits and, you know, the time frame needed. Um, one tip that I've heard, I think, from a couple of different places, is, and you'll probably hear it different ways, but it's like the two-minute rule. It's this idea that the uh, trickiest part of when you're trying to establish any, any habit or new routine is um, the beginning. The most resistance is at the beginning. Once you start doing something, you're doing it. So, for example, if I want to get in the habit of running, then... I, if I, one tip is to not focus on, oh, I'm going to go out and run every day, but maybe instead say, I'm going to put on my running shoes every afternoon or, or whatever, you know, whatever time is, is best or most likely for me to be able to run. And if you focus on just getting through that, the first two minutes of any task, um, that's the most difficult part and the, where you have the most resistance. Um, and so when I was trying to exercise regularly, I started small. I said, I'm just going to do five minutes. And I found that that was sustainable for me. I could, I could manage five minutes a day. And, um, so start small. Don't, don't start big. Um, you want to build up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Take uh, bite-sized chunks worth. Uh, and that, I mean, no, that's not even just, you know, exercising. That's any type of habit that you're trying to form. If you go zero to 60, you'll find that you're going back to zero pretty quick. Um, okay, so before I have Matt or Tim chime in, chime in with an interesting fact, I wanted to give a little bit of podcast update because there's two things, and I appreciate We get relatively routine comments now on our podcast, and I appreciate anyone that's taken the time to do so. Um, positive comments or critical comments. I'm fine with either. Um, I do no, find I it. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I, I ignore the critical ones. <laughs> <laughs> I take, I take down name and number and I, uh, right. I try to hunt them down online, but, um, I don't, I don't do that. 
I promise. Um, no, the uh, I do appreciate critical or or you know complimentary comments. The iron the irony of them sometimes the last couple ones that have been critical say that we're not very funny. Okay, two two things. First, I never said I was funny. <laughs> Uh, and number two, the attempts at, at, at humor are um, are the ones are the podcasts where people vote with their feet and listen the most. So while I don't think I'm particularly funny and Tim is only, you know, somewhere in the margins and Matt is usually uh, otherwise occupied. Um, the, what does that even mean? <laughs> you're, you're too busy to be funny. Uh, <coughs> the. Uh, the podcasts where we've had the most success are ones where we banter a bit. So as much as those of you that have co commented that you'd prefer that we just stick to the material, the reality is the vast majority of people apparently disagree. So I do appreciate your feedback, but apparently the majority of uh, those that listen to the podcast prefer a, a tad bit of banter as far as voting with uh, a number of downloads is concerned. But I appreciate everyone that listens, and hopefully you do get something out of it, if only the uh, names that I called him. That's right. Okay, uh, next fact about uh, something. Tim or Matt, do you have a fact that you'd like to share? I've got one. I just Shoot. read this um, uh, the, the other day. So uh, the, the term lynch law or lynch mob is, you know, taken for granted, at least in American uh, speech. Um, its origins, apparently, uh, go back to the Revolutionary War era. Again, this is the American Revolutionary War. And um, a, I guess a judge or, or an official in Virginia, uh, who's a patriot, and um, in other words, in favor of the American uh, cause. And he, he would, um, uh, well, in any case, it, apparently it was pretty hardcore, and you didn't really have to do much to, to um, other than be a Tory or a supporter of the British cause, to get in his crosshairs. And he would, um, uh, well, to say the least, would put uh, he would um, not handle you kindly in in court, and then um, it would it would so happen that mobs of of patriots would, you know, storm the, you know, the property of, of the person or whatever. And so it, but this was kind of extra legal stuff. And so it became known as lynch law and, uh, and, you know, a lynch mob. And so the, at least in America, the term for any time an extra legal mob executing its own brand of justice um, without, you know, without actually following the procedures of the law came to be known as lynch law and named it this guy lynch so there you go now known as the twitter mob twitter you know that's right <laughs> yeah we'll see if it uh, if it rebrands here uh, okay um i've got another factor too uh matt if there if anything comes up matt you just let us know um okay the uh, I'm reading a well, I'm kind of reading. I've always wondered, and I'd like people to give me feedback on whether audiobook reading is reading, 
Or if, like yeah. when I say I've read something and I only audiobooked it, does that count? No. No, it absolutely does not count. It's not bad. You can still do it, but it's not reading. You're that's listening. Like, that's like the vast majority of things I've ever read. <laughs> so okay, you, well, you have to use and, other verbs. There's, you know, audiobook, of course, which is now a verb. Or you could say I, I perused it, you know, that um, I guess implies reading, but not as definitively as read. I listen so. to all of Les Mis, and you're telling me I don't get credit for that? Correct. <laughs> you listened to it. You don't, in fact, Les Mis is, incredibly is, a, painful. is a stage play opera thing. You don't read that anyway. <laughs> yeah. Les Mis was a book first. <laughs> Whatever. Now it's a film. Uh, that is true. Huge anyway, No, unless you're trying to get, like, social media credit, there's no reason for you to not use the right verb. <laughs> it's well it's like that song in Les Mis. do you read the people sing i don't think that's how it goes yeah, and that's just offensive <laughs> <laughs> okay um the uh, actual fact here from my audiobook listen then halfway through the destiny of the republic which is a great um historical biography of james a garfield um I learned a fair amount about, um, well, obviously James A. Garfield, but there was a quote from Abraham Lincoln about the Civil War that really, um, I feel like I should have known it beforehand and maybe I'd heard it, but it hadn't stuck with me. Um, during the war, uh, Kentucky was incredibly important during the Civil, American Civil War. And Abraham Lincoln is quoted to, uh, by, uh, as having said, I hope to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. Um, and so, uh, obviously said, uh, you know, as uh, a little satire, but it was incredibly important. And James A. Gar Garfield led one of the more important battles of the Civil War, one little known um, Battle of Middle Creek in Kentucky and won it for the Union, which was uh, critical, obviously, in, in maintaining Kentucky, which was critical in winning the war, as the quote by Abraham Lincoln indicates. So I hadn't previously been aware of the importance of Kentucky in the Civil War, which tells you potentially that I don't know my Civil War history well enough. But uh, but obviously, uh, Abraham Lincoln was aware of the importance of that state in the uh, winning of that uh, of so the Civil War for the Union side, which, by the way, is Union side, the good guys, uh, the guys fighting against slavery. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was an important time in uh, American history and a uh, battle of, of Middle Creek in Kentucky was a big part of it. That's did you know that, Tim? I did not. And I didn't know until you told me that James Garfield was actually pretty cool. Didn't you say that he actually didn't want to be president? He, yeah, that is incredible. I, I want to like let people find, like listen to it in the book because I'm trying to Don't remember the name it. of the, listen to of the, the name yeah, of the biography. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, whatever. The biography uh, is written masterfully. Um, I'm trying to look up the name of the author. Oh, Candace Millard. She does yeah. an amazing job. And so I kind of want to let people, but yes, to, to just jump the gun, he didn't want to be president. He did not want to be nominated and um, and was against his will, <laughs> which, uh, which you can, can you imagine these days? And additionally, one of the... Um, 
one of the offhanded facts in the book said something along the lines of the whole campaign expenditure. And I don't think it was for, for his run to president, but it was like his run run to Congress totaled something less than a thousand dollars. Yeah, Which I suppose so, even then was not uh, all that much. Even even then, right? Even then, that's you know nowadays it's tens of millions of dollars. Uh, I guess that's for you know yeah, and bigger a zero national. or two onto that. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Yes. Lots of money expend uh, these days to try to get marketing. But. So while we're on a Candace Miller kick, I'm going to chime in with another fun fact. So I actually read a book by Candace Miller that my wife got for me after she read the same book as you did. I think um, the she may have actually read it though, Carl. Not to throw shade at you. Um, a little bit of shade. <laughs> I'm not. We're not. We're not throwing audiobook shade around here. We're not doing it. Um. <laughs> but she wrote another one called Hero of the Empire about Winston Churchill. It's called the, like the making of Winston Churchill. And it's kind of interesting. Everyone knows about Winston Churchill as an older man, you know, when he was, of course, a, a instrumental in, in leading the British and, um, you know, standing up against Hitler and the Nazis. Um, but Winston Churchill, you know, had a long uh, career and his beginnings, actually, he started off as, he was kind of this... Um, <clears throat> actually pretty high profile person he was the son of like the the uh high uh, high ranking british official um in in the late 1800s early 1900s and um and his his mother was actually a, a famous american um actress and um but anyways um he but he was the second son and so he or his father was second anyways he he wasn't like as far as British nobility getting anywhere. So he's had to kind of do things on his own. In any case, he made a name for himself as a, uh, a writer. And he was actually sent to South Africa during the Boer War at the beginning of the, the, the 20th century um, to cover that war. And he got captured by the South Africans and, um, and actually escaped capture and became uh, this he had this kind of crazy um journey back to to escape capture um and anyways he became this instant national hero and that's that's kind of how he started his political career after that he he ran for parliament and became a um a you know, became the, the politician he was, he, he eventually became, but it was all based on his going to South Africa, getting captured, and then this daring escape that took weeks of traveling through enemy territory and all this stuff. And anyways, it was kind of cool. Who knew? Winston Churchill. Who knew Winston Churchill? Yeah, as it turns out, a few people. <laughs> yes, awesome. Yes, Winston Churchill was an interesting guy and certainly um i wrote well, the last podcast we did we actually referenced the uh incredibly difficult uh history final that tim and i took and one of the essays i wrote yeah. in that final was on winston churchill so 
who's also okay. a shameless self-promoter, but, uh, you know, it <laughs> kind of comes with the par for the course with a politician. Yeah, except for James A. Garfield. That's so. right. <laughs> um, okay. I've got another fact here that I thought I found this the other day and I thought I thought it was this is one of the facts that I found incredibly important that I feel like when I tell other people they're going to tell me that it's not but I thought it was really cool the um, the way that our brain handles um, the number four and below is we it's got a separate way of handling numbers four and down then it has a processing numbers five and higher. So essentially what that means, so if you glance quickly at something and look away, uh, and then somebody asks you how many of, you know, cookie, how many cookies were there? Um, you, if the number is four or fewer, you will know it immediately. And if it's higher than four, it, it takes you longer. It takes you more mental load. And I guess, uh, Scientists have known this for a long time, that our brain, neuroscientists have known this for a long time, that the brain processes these numbers differently, but it wasn't yet clear. It says, um, until now, it wasn't clear if this was really evidence of two discrete neural mechanisms, um, but it is now. The, the testing that they've done, the research that they've done has demonstrated that the way that the neurons get fired um, for numbers four and fewer, there's an, an inhibition like you're inhibiting, your brain inhibits the neurons, the other number neurons from firing if it's four or lower. Like when you see seven of something and you look at the, and, um, and you try to count it, the, the neurons in your brain for like eight, the, the, the eight and six are also firing. They're just not firing as strongly as seven. Um, when numbers four and down, three is not firing and five is not firing. Like four is the only are the only neurons that fire when you see four or three or two, and so your brain has a different way. It can inhibit the other neurons from even becoming activated, which makes you a hundred percent certain that you have the number correct, um, which you don't get from this other from higher numbers because your your brain is allowing other neurons to get excited, um, and so I thought that was incredibly interesting. And I have five children which makes this challenging. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you, you, you don't know how many are around. That's, uh, I just never know. You know, I just I can never know. <laughs> Four, six, who knows? Um, I uh, just checked for myself, Carl. For me, it's actually three and under. <laughs> well, that does make some sense, actually. They, they, it does actually write you into the study as an exception, but the exception right. makes the, the rule. It's the exception that proves the rule. That's, uh, <laughs> that's my... My life's yeah. purpose. <laughs> anyway, I found uh, I found the, this this neural um, mechanism differentiating between four and five pretty pretty cool. So, hope, uh, hope that was useful for someone. Tim. Yeah, that's um, here here. Do you um, have another another fact? Oh, another fact. Yes, yes, I do. <clears throat> okay, so I want to talk to you about the least known amphibian. And um, so there's so many cool amphibians out there, right? Frogs, toads, salamanders, axolotls. Those are really cool. That's not I mean, even a real thing. You're right. It's a mythical, magical creature. I think those exist in Lord of the Rings. The, um, yeah, uh, Gimli carried his axolotl 
Yeah. Um, well, he axed right. a lot, so he was an axolotl. <laughs> This is the type of banter our podcast has really been needing. <laughs> That's right. That people That's just correct. lap up. <laughs> yes, those they they love it. The masses love it. Uh, no, the so the amphibian that I'm talking about is called a Sicilian. Um, it's spelled. Let me get the spelling right. C a e c i l i a n, and they're these crazy amphibians. They're legless, you know, like a snake, no legs, and their bodies are segmented. Kind of, they look like um, giant earthworms, actually. Um, but they're so they're these legless, um, ground-dwelling earthwormy amphibians, and they're actually amphibians, and um, they're super cool. So you should look them up and learn like all about them. Um, but yeah, they uh, have a few cool features. One, they, um, I think it's because of how they're, they're like habitat and whatever. But when, uh, when their young are born, they will stay with the, I guess the mother stays with them. And she actually produces a kind of milk that, um, you know, it's not amphibian, you know, it's not mammal milk, but it's a milky substance to feed them. And she also sheds her outermost skin and their offspring will eat that to to grow. Um, so anyways, just like, well, who knew? Interesting. Tim, you do seem to have a lot of like animal facts. I love uh, animal facts. I'm always watching um, <clears throat> when uh, when when Bethany and I do have um, like streaming services or whatever. I'll always be like watching the, you know, David Attenborough, you know, stuff and she's yeah. like oh tim can watch something else but it's, it's <laughs> nature's amazing so. yeah, my wife lo- loves any of the big cat documentaries oh yeah she's all about those so of course then if we like she likes documentaries but then she'll fall asleep and then i'm just left watching a documentary sometimes it's not one i want to watch so when, when uh, my wife and i were were dating we um uh, watched a planet earth like one of the planet earth documentaries it's super cool um luckily she did fall asleep because it was the part where the um where the uh killer whales attack and kill the baby whale which is the most horrifying thing you've ever seen oh or baby whale oh yeah it was uh really brutal yes um okay well moving away from brutality to animals tim we talked about <laughs> losing us losing us listeners um, which by the way, I'm parenthetically, <laughs> the, uh, my wife got me a new, um, camera, a new webcam. The last time I got a new webcam was before the turn of the last decade, I think. Uh. So I think my last one was made like 2009. So this one's so, a lot nicer. What? That's a wild and fun fact. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, yes, yes, it is. The um, for the five people that watch us on YouTube, which, by the way, is a huge disparity. We have a lot of listeners on Spotify, like like fifteen thousand people that routinely listen to us on Spotify, and like five on YouTube. I mean, what is going on? I think it's well, my face. Uh, let's, well, yeah, I was gonna say it's if, because <laughs> nobody watches a podcast. It's the wrong verb. We've gone well, into people this. listen to books. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I guess that's true. 
if okay. you watched us, though, we would get a lot more critical feedback. Like, can you guys <laughs> please do something about your faces? That's true, but to be fair, I'm the only one um, that really routinely does the uh, the video, and so it would really more the feedback would be please do something about your face, not faces. <laughs> so, That's right. Wear a mask, please. Um, okay, which would be a way to get more viewers, I think. Uh, my next um, fact is one. This is. Well, it is a fact. I'm, I'm sticking with fact. Okay, I was doing research into intellectual humility, which, by the way, I didn't even know existed. I'm trying to remember how I found this. I somehow found the this. Sounds you, fitting for us. <laughs> <laughs> we pretend to be laymen, but never mind. Yeah, yeah, well, intellectual humility, I think, is like, it's wonderful. And I've never known the, like it had a specific name, but the more I started reading about it, I was like, yeah, this is really what I like. And this is kind of the premise of the whole podcast is that, um, you know, you want uh, the, the key facts about intellectual humility right here it involves awareness of limitations, openness to new ideas and the willingness to revise, revise beliefs, improves tolerance toward view, differing viewpoints and enhances relationships and uh, facilitates personal growth, authenticity, and a more accurate self-view. Yeah, well, let me explain to you why your characterization of intellectual humility is completely wrong. <laughs> I will hear no <laughs> arguments otherwise. <laughs> well, some of us resonate with this more strongly than others. <laughs> you know, the frustrating thing about intellectual humility is the more you learn about it, the less confident you can feel about what you know about it. It does, it does talk about the fact that the humility in general, the, so often humility we kind of view kind of more in a religious light, but this is more along the lines of socio, econ, not economic, so, uh, sociology research. This is the idea that it goes beyond any type of religious uh, boundaries to just a general mindset. So those of you that are not religious that listen to our podcast are, you know, hopefully you, you should be able to connect with everything, you know, the, the same way that religious people do along the lines of these things I just read, uh, where awareness of limitations, openness to new ideas, willingness to revise beliefs. These are good things as for a society. And so what I didn't know. So the fact here is that there is actual research being done into this huh. and that, yeah, I didn't even know. I mean, I guess it makes sense. Um, sociologists and I don't know. I feel what like thing? part of this re requires a kind of it, it is social like it, it's there's a certain empathy because what what that um, intellectual humility is, is recognizing that the other people in the room may have things that you don't have or may have understanding that you don't have. So if I lack intellectual humility, kind of what I'm what I do is I don't um, own the I don't respect my um, the others around me as much right, right. And so right. it's a kind of lack of empathy of sorts yeah yeah exactly and so this is this is something that they're doing research into it and uh and it's just demonstrating that um that this is something that that builds societal bridges obviously the whole idea but it's also the research is, is demonstrating that it can be something that you can achieve like it's not just genetic genetically the case it's something that people can that this type of humility can be cultivated and encouraged and, mm -hmm. and societies can, you know, become more intellectually humble, which then 
builds a society. So that's what uh, was super exciting to me is that 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 fact that research that's being done into humi humility cultivation is uh, is promising. And uh, and that I feel like, you know, 100 years ago, it was the case that the layman was intellectually humble. And I'm afraid that these days the layman is becoming less intellectually humble. So I'd like to encourage the idea of being you know, being well, willing to why we're here to intellectually humble people. <laughs> I've always found it my role in life to humble people. <laughs> um, I feel like no, there's but, a, a, a million movies about this topic. You think, you know, standard arrogant young person, you know, needs training from uh, older, wiser person acquires intellectual humility, you know. Yes, exactly. Um, Batman begins. <laughs> I don't know, you know, guess he learning. I don't know. Anyway, um, I was going to read the, well, just, it says empirical interest and virtues and their benefits have increased in recent years. So this is not just me thinking about it. This is one of the studies I was looking into. Um, it says it would test the efficiency of a workbook intervention to promote, promote humility. So this is a particular methodology to promote humility. And right. our findings demonstrate the efficacy of the uh, intervention with religious and non-religious individuals. So this is um, this spans all gaps. You can inculcate the idea of intellectual humility, and uh, and it has benefits. So inculcate. That's it. Did you say with a workbook? Yeah, that's what it says. Wow. Please complete the following exercises to acquire intellectual humility. That that is awesome. <laughs> I guess and I'm if going it's a good workbook, there's stories and stuff. Okay. Exactly. Okay, Tim. Yes. Do you have any more facts? I have one I more. Have one more fact. Okay. okay. This is, uh, and this may surprise people actually. So it's, it turned out they've done some studies on this, and one is the loneliest number. Okay. Research um, consisted of listening to a three dog night song. Yeah. Oh my Isn't gosh. that song like 20 years old now? Oh, in 20, <laughs> is that it? Sorry. I think it's more than that. Yeah, never mind. Wrong. <laughs> but uh, I actually have no more interesting facts. But um, okay. that doesn't surprise me. Okay. That's my um, I've got one more, and then we'll wrap the podcast with a quote from Mark Twain, which is worth sticking around for. Ooh. Um. Okay, the uh, last fact is once again, these are things that, you know, we all go around, you know, sometimes looking up information and some of it being more or less interesting. Uh, we obviously try to uh, accumulate interesting facts for this podcast. We do these fact, these fact podcasts every once in a while. But this one I thought um, was something that we've all wondered. Many of us have looked up and then immediately forgotten. But I looked into it recently um, and uh, it, this is the tax burden by state. So this is mostly interesting to our uh, U.S.-based audience that um, I didn't look up tax burden by country. I'm sure that's uh, something I could look up as well, but I'm not currently interested in uh, moving out of the country. So I'm actually not interested in moving at all. But I hear, I live in California, okay? A lot of people give us hard time that we have incredibly high taxes. Um, and I won't necessarily disagree, but on the overall tax burden list, California is number 12. So, wow. yeah, how about them apples? Um, 
we are at a total tax burden of 8.89%. Now, a couple things to take into consideration. I believe that California does have the highest income tax rate in the country, but it's a graduated income tax, meaning you're only paying that top rate for income, income over, it might even be over a million, but it's something along those lines. It's not relevant to most people. I get that millionaires, that would be pretty infuriating. But um, for the vast majority of Californians, it's not relevant. You don't pay any, pay anywhere near that. Um, we have our property taxes are pretty in line with a lot of other states. Um, they're higher as a total dollar amount because California property is worth a lot. But as far as percentage goes, it's not really out of line. Um, and so our overall tax burden, like I said, number 12, New York. We have a lot of people listening to us in New York. You guys pay through the nose. Um, and I guess I'm not really telling you in, anything new, but if those of you out there that are considering moving to New York, just beware that you have a lot of tax burden coming. Uh, Hawaii is number two. Maine is number three. And that one's surprising, right? Like, why? There's not even, like, what are they taxing? The moose? Um, <laughs> Ouch, Mainers. There's not many people on Maine. Maine is um, a great place, I just have to say. Have you been to Maine? I have been. Really? Yes. It's a, oh. you know, it was a lovely, lovely place. Beautiful forest and coast. Um, we went to this great hot dog shack where they don't serve hot dogs with mustard if you're 16 or older, which is very sensible. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Don't serve hot dogs with ketchup if you're 16 or older. And I asked the lady and I said, why don't you serve hot dogs with ketchup if you're a six-year-old? She said, because then you need to grow up. And, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, anyways. So uh, lots of respect for Maine. Awesome. That is, that is wonderful. Okay. I don't know much about Maine. I just know that it's tax burden is pretty high, which, um, though another state that I'm, I used to live in Illinois, I've always wondered why Illinois taxes are so high and a lot of it's property tax, but like Illinois, there are parts of Illinois that are nice, but it's so cold in the Northern part of the state. Compliment. Well, the northern part is the northern part. There's more than just the northern part. But there isn't really. <laughs> I mean, it's something like 80% of the population of Illinois is in the top, like, 50 miles of the state or something. So. Hey, Mr. Doesn't Live in Coastal California. Everyone's saying that about... Uh... <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I live in Southern California as well, where... We have a highly concentrated population. So, okay. Anyway, but if you're wondering where the before we jump off here, the uh, the lowest states. If you're wondering, okay, how can I evade taxes? Which I know you all are. Alaska, number fifty, lowest tax burden of all the states, five percent. So, wow. uh, Delaware, Delaware after uh, before that. So, forty nine is Delaware, forty eight is New Hampshire, forty seven is Tennessee. So, those are some of the options. Um, as far as low tax burden states. So we're not yet in tax season, but we are in a new year. And so you are already thinking about what your next year's tax returns or tax uh, burden might be. So that's, uh, that's something to consider. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to wrap up this podcast. Matt, did you have any final thoughts? No, I think this was fact-based and intuitive. I mean, informative 
<laughs> were there enough? Was there enough banter, or was there insufficient banter? That's um, the question. Adequate banter. <laughs> All right. We're going to have a whole slate of uh, new guests this year. I've already started lining some of those up. So we're looking forward to getting some more uh, insight into um, non-layman uh, non insight into topics that the layman might be interested in. So uh, look, look for those coming down the pipe. And then we'll also have Tim do whatever Tim does. Um, You're going to love it. <laughs> as they all do all right well thanks we'll be back in the next podcast